Acts chapter 2 is our sermon text this morning. We are to be refreshed today, it will be through the work of our great God and what he says to us through his word. So let us attend to the reading of that holy and infallible word in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs... We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God endures forever. People of God, I'm sure you've had the experience of finding a piece of mail and open it and it it looks like it's sort of important. It's got your name on it and it it seems like there's something that you need to do, but it's hard to decipher. There's several pages to filter through and you have to read the fine print in order to understand all of it and you might cry out at some point, what does this mean? And a second question might be, how is this important to me? You want to find all of that out and I think if you were to ask many Christians about the event of Pentecost in history, they would be able to tell you that it seems important. They think it's important and it has something to do with the Holy Spirit and Him being given to us, but with the account in the book of Acts, there are so many signs going on that you wonder, uh, what does it mean and what is God doing in all of it? So that's what we're considering today. What does this account mean? How is it important for us. We need to understand the importance of Pentecost. We've reminded ourselves now as we've worked through the story of redemption from uh, the holiday of Christmas all the way on down, the birth, the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. And now we remember on this day the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. And we need to understand that uh, if if we do not grasp the importance of Pentecost, we will not grasp really what it is that God does for his church in in giving us salvation and righteousness and holiness and having that, all of that, 
find a home in our hearts. So we will consider what all of it means, why it's important for us, and then two questions just to keep in the back of your mind as we work through uh, this passage. The first is this, if God truly dwells in us, then how holy must we be in our lives? If the true God dwells in us, how holy must we be in our lives? But a second question, if God truly dwells in us, how holy must we be already? So as we work through this account in the book of Acts, written, of course, by Luke, we see again, as we've been working through his gospel, how he's a master of weaving things from the Old Testament and alluding to them. And this passage is no exception, filled with allusions. And that's what these signs are pointing us to. Three signs that we need to pay attention to. The first is the rushing and blowing of a violent wind. The second, the tongues of fire that sit above each person who receives the Spirit. And third, the speaking in other languages by those who receive the Spirit. But first, uh, consider when this is happening and and who uh, this applies to or who Luke is talking about when he speaks about this account of Pentecost. When? We are told that this is on the Feast of Pentecost. This was a Jewish feast called the Feast of Weeks. It happened 50 days after the Passover. On the first Sunday after the Passover, that was called the Day of First Fruits. And then between Passover and Pentecost, there were 50 days. And that was the grain and the barley harvest. And so on the Day of First Fruits, you would celebrate and look forward to God's abundant provision uh, that he would give at the end of the harvest. But What is happening here is that that timeline is being applied to the resurrection of Christ and and to the event of Pentecost here for the church. That is to say, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead the first Sunday after Passover. In other words, he was raised to new life on the day of first fruits. And his resurrection was a first fruits of the harvest to come. But that harvest to come is realized here on the day of Pentecost, the Jewish Feast of Weeks, celebrating the grain and the barley harvest. So you see what Luke is doing here. He's showing us how uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit is the full flowering of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Then we ask, uh, who are the people who receive the Spirit? It says in verse 1, they're all gathered together in one place. That refers back to chapter 1, where 120 are gathered with the apostles waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so that is the when and the who. As we look at these signs, the first thing what we see, what all these signs mean, is that Pentecost is an account, it's an event of new creation. New creation. We see throughout this account there is the awesome presence of God's life-giving power. And what we see, or where we see that, is in the rushing and the blowing of the wind. God's ability to create life is often likened to the movement of air. Keep in mind that both the Greek word and the Hebrew word for spirit can mean not only spirit, but also uh, wind or breath. And we often, there's fitting ambiguity there or uh, movement of that term, different meanings of that term, because we often think of the activity of the Spirit of God as like unto wind 
or breath. The wind blows where it wishes. And so it is with everyone who was born with the Spirit. And so we think when God created Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, he forms him out of the dust. But then what does he do? He breathes life into him. He breathes life into Adam because he is the God who has life-giving power. Uh, There's another, perhaps even clearer example in Ezekiel chapter 37 where the prophet of the Lord is given a vision. He's standing over a valley of dry bones, completely dead, completely lifeless. And God speaks to his prophet. He says, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, Lord, only you know. And so the Lord says this to Ezekiel to speak to the valley of dry bones, keep in mind that the Hebrew word for breath is the word for spirit. So the Lord says this, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. The Ezekiel in this passage shows us the power of the spirit of God to give life and to give life coming forth from death. The rushing winds themselves were a big part of the Israelites' mindset and how they thought about life. They waited for east winds to bring rain off of the Mediterranean Sea, that rain would fall on their dry ground, that it would water their crops and bring forth the life and an abundant harvest. So in Isaiah 44, we read this, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So the movement of air, the movement of wind, was something that the the Israelites would liken to the life-giving power of God. And here at Pentecost, we see this blowing of a violent wind. So it's an event of new creation, and we ask, what is God going to create? It's also an event of new revelation. New revelation, in other words, God is going to reveal something about his plan and his process of redemption. We see this symbolized to us in the tongues of fire. Note that Luke tells us that they're not just flames of fire. He has the word flames in his vocabulary, but he tells us that these are flames of fire. So we associate it with what? With words, with speaking. Not only that, after this, when Peter is empowered by the Holy Spirit, he's going to preach a sermon And tell the people standing around who are gathered at the day of Pentecost what all of this means. And then also not only do we see the visible tongues of fire above the 120. But also the the tongues, the languages that we hear. As as these people, these 120 who received the Holy Spirit, proclaim the mighty works of God. They are speaking revelation from God. We should also uh, just mention what it is that's really going on here with uh, the speaking of tongues. Some people believe that this is a miracle of hearing. In other words, the, the, those who are speaking are speaking the language that they know. Right? So for most of us, that would be English. We're speaking in English. But the people who are hearing, they're hearing in the language that they know. And it seems much better to take this as not a miracle of hearing, but a miracle of speaking. In other words, as these 120 are given the gift of the Holy Spirit, they supernaturally are given the ability to speak a known language, an intelligible language, that they do not themselves know how to speak. See how they're, they're proclaiming the mighty works of God, so we know it's intelligible. 
We know it's a human language because people are hearing them and understanding them in their own language. And so it's a miracle of speaking, not of hearing. It's a miracle that has to do with known languages on the earth. Uh, For this feast of weeks, the uh, people, the amount of people in Jerusalem would balloon to as much as five times the normal amount of people, something like around 30,000 up to as many as 150,000 for this feast, gathered in Jerusalem. So the Jews who had been dispersed around that part of the world came back to Jerusalem on pilgrimage to celebrate this feast. That means that many of them spoke as their first language something different. And so that's what's going on here. But what does this miraculous gift of speaking in other languages, what does it mean? Two things. It's a bless, it is a sign of uh, judgment upon Israel. It's a sign of blessing to the nations. First, it's a sign of judgment upon Israel. If you've noticed, you notice there at the end of this passage, there's this strange, uh, this strange verse that Luke includes, and people saying, that, oh, these, these people are drunk. They're filled with too much wine. Luke is telling us that because he's referring back to something in the Old Testament. One of the ways that, that God spoke his judgment upon Israel, and those who had broken the covenant, was he was looking at those who led the people of Israel, the spiritual leaders of Israel. And he said, they, they know so little, they've rebelled from me so much, they're, they're like these shepherds of Israel going around drunk on wine. They can't even speak intelligibly. And so God says in Isaiah 28 that one day there will come a day when the good news of God, when the promises of God will be spoken by people of foreign tongues. And so this is one of God's ways of showing a judgment upon the nation of Israel for rejecting their Messiah. But it's also a sign of blessing for the nations. Because as that judgment rests upon God's people, what does that mean for everyone else in the world? It means that God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham to bless all of the nations of the earth. That this message, this good news of God is going to be disseminated into the various languages of the world and spread to the very ends of the earth. Salvation through the glorious and merciful and gracious God. It's, it's God taking the first step of reversing the confusion that happened and began at the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, peoples of the earth come together. They are trying to take the place of God. God scatters and divides them by dividing them into various languages. God is beginning to reverse that by, sh- by showing that he is creating one new people in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, all the various languages are going to continue to exist to the end of the age. But what we get now is a foretaste that at the last day, in the resurrection, those who are found in Christ will be made into one new people, perfectly unified forever. And the curse of Babel uh, reversed forever. So, new revelation. What is God going to say? What's God going to make? What's God going to say? New creation, new revelation. And then finally, This event is an event that is a new and a better Sinai. This is perhaps the clearest, uh, the clearest of the connections that we can make from all that we see in Acts chapter 2. What's going on here is that this is a new and a better Sinai. Remember on Mount Sinai what happened? There was thunder and lightning. There were loud noises. There was the awesome and the glorious presence of God. There was his glorious presence in fire. And the people of Israel... Howard in fear. They were afraid of all that was going on 
on Mount Sinai. And we see here there is the rushing of uh, the blowing of a violent wind. There's the tongues of fire sitting above those who receive the Spirit. This is a new and it is a better Sinai. The glorious presence of God is here. The glory of God is being spoken by those uh, who speak in the power of the Spirit. So, at Sinai, what happened? At Sinai, there was a confirmation of what God was doing with his people, a confirming of a covenant. So those are the three signs that tell us what's going on in the account of Pentecost. It's an event of new creation. It's an event of new revelation. And it is a new and a better Sinai. Let's begin with that last one, new and a better Sinai, as we think about what it is that God is doing in this event of Pentecost. Well, if it is a new and it is a better Sinai, then God is confirming in and for his people a new covenant. A new covenant that was promised long ago, but then executed in Christ and then confirmed on this day of Pentecost. The new covenant church found and established at this day of Pentecost in the power of the Spirit, this is the day that it begins. The people of God assembled under this new covenant which is confirmed in the blood of Christ and then given by the power of the Spirit. And so we look back to this day, Pentecost, to see this was where the assembly of God's people were gathered in the power of the Spirit under the name and the work of Jesus Christ. This new covenant, a couple of things to think about, is really what it, what it means to us and the meaning as we grasp and we think about it is that we have to understand how the Holy Spirit makes the work of Christ present to us. That's really one of the big things that we need to understand about the new covenant. When God promised, for instance, in Ezekiel chapter 36, he promised a new covenant that was going to bring this greater and expanded blessing of the Holy Spirit. So Ezekiel writes in chapter 36, God's word given through him, I will remove your heart of stone. I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. God promised that when this new covenant came into effect, that he was going to give this greater and expanded blessing of the Holy Spirit to his people. But that was so that the work of the Savior could be made present to us. We spoke about, at at the beginning, as we were considering this, we, we spoke about how we need to understand how this fits in the picture of life, death, resurrection, ascension, and then Pentecost. We have to understand it especially in light of the ascension. Because Jesus ascends into heaven. We read that in Acts chapter 1. He goes up into heaven. Remember he is raised from the dead because of the perfection of his work. Because of who he was as a perfect savior. And as a perfect sacrifice of righteousness. God declares him to be the son of God. Raises him to new life. And then brings him up into heaven. And what happens at the ascension is Jesus flings wide the doors of heaven. But bodily, he remains in heaven with this glorious new life of assurance and salvation and perfection that has entered into history. So the question should become, how does that heavenly life come to find a home in our hearts? 
And it does so by the power of the Holy Spirit in this new and better covenant. God's people always saved by grace through faith. But before Christ, there is this tension, isn't there? There's a tension in the temple. So the book of Hebrews says that as these sacrifices in the old covenant are happening over and over and over again, a problem is that people would know, they would see all of these sacrifices taking place and they're trying to think about the atonement. You you think about somewhere in the Old Testament like Psalm 103 that talks about the perfection of God's mercy and that he will forgive and he will forgive and he will forgive. But the problem as they're looking at the, at the work going on in the temple is that come next year around this time, I'm going to need that same exact sacrifice. There was no sacrifice that would cleanse our consciences. But in Christ, our consciences are cleansed because we see the perfect once for all sacrifice. That tension of the temple is removed because Christ goes to the heavenly temple to fully and finally give us and grant us salvation. There's also a tension in in the sense that the people of Israel, what are they doing? They're continuously breaking God's law. So God is sending his prophets and he's saying, you're rebelling against me, you're rebelling against me. And then finally we see the true Israel come. The one whom Israel was intended to be, that is Jesus Christ, this fully perfect, fully righteous sacrifice for sin. And so we read in places like the book of Ephesians where the, the Apostle Paul gives us this glorious vision of heaven and he says Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven but then because of the Spirit we are seated in the heavenly places with him. We are given all of the heavenly blessings in Christ. That is why we need to understand and know the things that happen in this new covenant. So take comfort in that and know That this is one of the glorious truths that comes forth out of Pentecost. The glory, the comfort, the assurance of the new covenant of seeing our Savior fling wide the gates of heaven and then send us the blessings of that heavenly life. Not only a new covenant, but also a new focus of the mission of God's people. A new focus of the mission of God's people. If you go on and you read the sermon that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2, what is it that his sermon does? Empowered by the Holy Spirit, he bears witness about Jesus Christ. And that is the new focus of the mission of God's people. Two, in the power of the Spirit, bear witness about the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It's been said, you look at places throughout the Psalms that sort of give you a a very simple picture of what it is that God's people are to do. So, uh, for instance, Psalm 96 Declare his glory among the nations, his salvation amongst the people. Psalm 96, verse 3. That verse is fulfilled in Christ, and that's what God's people are to do. To declare his glory among the nations in Christ. To declare his salvation amongst the peoples in Christ. And so in Peter's sermon, he brings forth the very truth that Jesus said would happen. You remember in John chapter 16 when the apostles are meeting together before Jesus has been crucified, Jesus says, when I send you the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's exactly what Paul's preaching does. Convicts those who hear it in terms of sin. They're sinful. They have crucified the Lord of glory. In terms of righteousness, they don't have it. Jesus does. 
in terms of judgment. Judgment is coming one day, but you can escape that coming judgment if you seek salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is to be the mission of God's people to spread that message of hope throughout the world, to build up the saints in the hope of that message. Each and every week, we need to be reminded of the good news and the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. And really, what Peter shows us in that sermon he preaches is that the last days have dawned. The last days have dawned. But rather than judgment coming, grace has come. Salvation has come in Jesus Christ. Remember, John the Baptist struggled with that, didn't he? It, Jesus comes and he's preaching grace, he's preaching forgiveness, and John the Baptist says, I thought you had come to bring judgment. But Jesus Christ came to bear the judgment so that we might be forgiven in him. It's a new focus of the mission of God's people, focus specifically on Jesus Christ and the message of salvation in him. Then also, there's a new dwelling of God. There is a new dwelling of God. The awesome and the glorious presence of God finds a new home. This glorious expansion of realizing the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, God's people are saved by faith throughout all of the ages, but there's this this glorious revelation of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is always working and acting amongst God's people, in the midst of God's people, doing various things throughout the Old Testament. We see that over and over and over again. But there is this expansion of blessing in regards, to, uh, in regards to the Holy Spirit in this new covenant. And it is this, that God's indwelling presence with which he filled the temple in Jerusalem in the Old Testament, that finds a new home, and it finds its home in the people themselves. So what does that mean? It means that the glorious indwelling presence of God is not tied to a physical building. It's not tied to something made with brick and mortar, but he indwells his covenant people. Luke shows us this in a fascinating way. In verse 2 and verse 4, two occurrences of the English word filled. In verse 2, it's talking about how the Spirit fills the house where they're gathered. Verse 4, talking about how they are filled. Uh, the, The Spirit fills the people. Behind those two English words filled are two different Greek words that mean filled. In verse 2, It's a general one, just generally the Spirit fills the house. But in verse 4, when it's saying that the Spirit fills the people of God, Luke uses the same verb that you see all throughout the Old Testament where the Spirit of God fills especially. He indwells in the sense of his glorious house of worship. He indwells the temple. And so Luke tells us in the course of just a couple of verses that the Spirit does not fill the building where they are gathered in that way, but he fills the people who are gathered in that building that way. There is this new dwelling place of God. What does this mean? It means that in the new covenant, we are the dwelling place of God. It means that we do not need to go up on pilgrimage each and every year to Jerusalem because Jesus Christ has entered the heavenly Jerusalem and has opened the realities of that to us. It means that we don't need to turn a certain way when we pray, for we carry with us the glorious presence of God in our hearts. We need to take comfort in that. It reminds us of the gospel, doesn't it? It reminds us of the gospel. You can see uh, various religions, faith systems throughout the world. How is it that they think they're made right with God? For instance, the 
The month of religious observation of Ramadan is coming up, happens in the spring. And what's going on when those of the Muslim faith celebrate Ramadan or go through Ramadan? They're worshiping their God so that they might show that they have righteousness, so that they might show that they deserve redemption. It's explicit in their teachings. Forgiveness comes to those who deserve it. Do you see how the gospel of Jesus Christ changes all of that and flips it on its head? Where does the gospel of Jesus Christ begin? It begins at redemption. It begins at redemption, and from redemption we see that righteousness is given to us by faith, and from that flows forth worship. You need to be redeemed first, given righteousness, so that you can worship. All the other faith systems, what are they going to say? Let your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. It was staggering how many times I heard, we heard that yesterday, walking uh, through our community and talking to people about God and what they believed. Believe that my good deeds need to outweigh my bad deeds. Friends, we'll always lose at that game. So ask yourself, have you understood the gospel? Have you understood the good news of Jesus Christ that you look to this one who flings wide the gates of heaven, who grants us redemption, who gives us his righteousness, and who frees us? to be worshipers of him. So what does that mean for us? How is it important? How do all these things come into our lives now and encourage us uh, so that we can live in light of Pentecost? Well, if we are the new dwelling place of God, it reminds us that there's a call to holiness. There's a necessity of holiness as God's people. We asked ourselves the question at the beginning, if God truly dwells in us, how holy ought we to be in our lives. There are many people today who who say that if you really want to be preaching the gospel, you need to soften all of the commands that are still found in Scripture because you don't want to sound too legalistic. But as I read the Bible, the only Bible that I read, what does it tell me? It tells me to abstain from every form of evil. It tells me to be zealous for good works. It tells me to train for godliness because if God dwells in us and we are the dwelling place of God, how holy must we be? It also reminds us that there's a call and a necessity to be part of the church. If you read the New Testament, those who are talking about this glorious truth of Pentecost, Peter and Paul primarily, Paul says that we are one temple of God. We are the temple of God joined together And Peter says that we are living stones, part of that temple. It's always understood communally. Now, does the Spirit of God come and indwell individual persons? Yes. But it's part of a larger picture. There's a necessity of joining yourself to the church and being a part of that community. The call to holiness, the call to the church. But then finally, the call to remember the gift of holiness. We said that this was... Uh, an event that is a new and a better Sinai. What is it that happened at Sinai? The glory of God, the awesome presence of God fills the mountain and the Israelites cower in fear. They're running away and they're they're, they're begging Moses to mediate for them. You go up on the mountain. We can't stand being in this awesome presence of God. What is it that happens at Pentecost? The spirit is given And what do God's people do? Do they cower in fear? Do they run away? Do they beg the apostles to mediate for them? No, they speak the mighty works of God and they speak boldly. What does that point us to? 
It points us to fundamentally what we've just been talking about, about the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you see, with Christ put on display, flung wide the gates of heaven, seated at his Father's right hand, ascended up there ruling and reigning. What is it that we remember first by the power of the Spirit? Not the call to be holy for God is holy. But we begin here with this word. That in Christ, God has made you holy. If we are the dwelling place of God, we ask ourselves the question at the beginning, how holy must we be already? And if the Spirit is given to us in these glories of the new covenant, the glories of salvation in Jesus Christ, what he brings to us are those benefits of Christ which he has won and which he holds in heaven. And he sends to us by the power of the Spirit. What is it? It's his perfect righteousness that he grants to us by faith. The glory of this truth is that in Christ, God makes us holy by faith. And that's why we don't need to cower in fear. That's why, as it relates to God, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. That's why, as it relates to this world, we can approach this life with confidence because we know that the greatest treasure we could ever receive on this earth, fellowship with God, being welcomed as a child of Him, we have that in Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so He calls us to remember, remember that in Christ we are made holy. We are made holy by faith and by His grace. So remember that and take comfort in that. As you think about Pentecost today, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that these truths might sink into our hearts. Father, we pray that you might be working in the hearts of those to draw them unto yourself. And that if there's anyone here that has never called out to Jesus in repentance and faith, that they would do so. You would enliven their hearts. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.